This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Thanks for uh, coming back to class two. Before we uh, jump in, just an update. So I I broke my ankle on Tuesday. So that's why I have this nice scooter here. And I was uh, telling some of the some of the other folks. It was funny because I lead a community group, and so we always talk about the sermon from the Sunday before. And so I broke my ankle on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, leading a small group discussion on the lame beggar. And it was like, that, that just uh, put it in a new context for me, you know, of my, of my, of my need. It's pretty funny, and I was just thinking, Lord, I don't know what you're really trying to teach me with this, but it's, it's funny either way. So anyway. Yep, so if I, uh, if I drop something, like if I drop my Bible, you know, if I could just designate one of you guys to help me and come and pick it up, I'd appreciate that. But anyway, um, I'm grateful you came back to session two of our class, um, What About Evil? I uh, hope, the, hope the first class was informative and, and helpful. And just want to recap for a little bit and then dive in. This, this class will be about uh, an overview and theology of Job. And I have some outlines, so if you didn't get an outline, you can run to the back table by the coffee and get one. Um, the, the first class, so the, the big idea of the class is kind of trying to answer a question. So the problem of evil, it, it really narrows down on this question of, if God, why evil? So if God is all good, wouldn't he want to stop evil? And if God is all powerful, couldn't he stop evil? If those two things are true, which they are in the Bible, God is all good and God is all powerful, why is there evil? That, that in a nutshell, is the, the problem of evil. And it's what some authors would say is the, the, the strongest argument against Christianity now, I think, as we talked about, as you guys talked about last week, and as we'll talk about today and next week, the Bible provides really good answers, and the Bible meets that objection. But it is, if I'm talking to somebody on the street about, you know, what they think about Christianity, that's pretty, if someone's not a Christian, that will almost always be one of the questions that comes up. How can you believe in a God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? It's a question that we don't want to, we don't want to just sort of, um, I guess, avoid because it's difficult, right? We want, we want to dive into these tough questions with confidence that the Bible actually speaks to this. We don't have to avoid the hard things. We can dive into the hard things because Scripture, uh, scripture is sufficient and it's clear and it teaches us answers to these questions. And the big, um, I guess, answer that Jake kind of talked about from the, from the book that we're basing this class off of is the greater glory defense. And just in a nutshell, he's saying, well, God, for the sake of his own glory, allows suffering and evil because his glory is displayed in greater ways because of suffering and evil that wouldn't be displayed without it. Does, it. does that kind of make sense? And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit as we go through Job. But the big idea is that God's glory is displayed, for instance, in redemption. And what he's done for us in Christ. We praise God for his glorious grace. But grace doesn't make sense and doesn't come to us without the, the black backdrop of sin 
and death and evil. Does that make sense? And so God has a great purpose for this. But this session uh, doesn't aim to answer the problem of evil with philosophy, but with a story. Uh, So we're going to talk about the story of one man, his suffering, and his God. Uh, The outline of Job I have there in in your notes. This is what we're going to walk through. We're going to kind of just slowly, well, not really slowly, it's actually going to be super fast, just walking through a whole theology of the book of Job uh, in three, three parts. So here's the outline of Job I have for you. Part one is Job's miserable suffering. This is chapters one through three. Uh, second, Job's misguided counselors, chapters four through 37. And then three, Job's majestic God chapters 38 through 42. I've included at the end of each section, we'll talk about the the story a little bit, the text, and then I'm I'm adding what I'm calling lessons at the end of each section, kind of application points, doctrines, things that this book teaches us about suffering and evil that would be helpful to us. And I really, um, you know, if last class, I think Jake mentioned the two um, types of questioners when it comes to the problem of evil. You have the armchair questioner, kind of the, you know, the bearded man sitting in the armchair with a pipe, uh, questioning philosophically what is the problem of evil. And those are good questions to have. But he also talked about the wheelchair sufferer, right? Or the scooter sufferer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, somebody, Somebody who's experienced suffering and evil and doesn't just ask, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? But the question is, why me? Why me, Lord? I'm sure several of you have asked that question or asking that question right now, if you're honest with yourself, if you're experiencing suffering, why me? Job asked that question. Job was very perplexed about that question. And this book is helpful for addressing not just the armchair questioner, but the wheelchair questioner. So my my hope is that as we go through this material, it'd both be informative, it'd help you, you'd learn about the book of Job, but also would encourage your faith. It would encourage you as you seek to have faith in the midst of suffering, and it would encourage you and help you to be a friend to those who suffer. So we'll, and ultimately it would help you as it points you to the God who's sovereign over suffering and evil. So that's kind of where we're going. Okay, So Job 1, the book of Job begins with Job's prosperity. So Job 1, the first several verses, says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. A little phrase, the people of the East. Job uh, probably wasn't a Jew. He probably lived in the time of the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But he lived away from where they were. So he's a, what the Bible calls a God-fearer. Somebody who's outside of the covenant people of God but has a sense of who God is and is, is a fearer of God. That's scholars' best guess. We're not really sure about Job's historical placement, but that, that's what people think. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of, um, house of each one of his day, on, on his day, and they would send an invite and their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So the book of Job begins with this man Job, who's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. That's, that's a combination you don't see a lot, is it? Someone who's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. But Job just begins by showing that that is possible. Having, having wealth doesn't necessarily mean you've sold out or you're, or you're not godly or something like that. But he's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. But the most important description of Job comes in verse 1, that the man was blameless. So what does that, what does that mean? How can somebody be blameless? Well, the word blameless, it, it doesn't mean sinless. So it's not like Job never sinned during his lifetime. What the word blameless means is something like personal integrity. Like he's the same on the inside as he is on the outside. So that's why Paul in Philippians 3 can say, according to the law, I was blameless. Well, really, Paul, like you, you never sinned? You never coveted? You? No, it's, it's not saying that, but it's saying, I am genuine. Like there's no secret sin that I'm hiding. What I am on the outside, the face I'm putting in front of others is who I truly am on the inside. And that's really important because in the story, Job's friends are going to say, well, the reason you're suffering must be because there's some secret sin that we don't know about. And Job, the whole time, says, no, I'm, I'm blameless. I'm not sinless, but I'm, I'm blameless of some secret sin that you think I'm, I'm hiding. That's what that means. He's, he's blameless. And then, as you guys know, the story goes, Job's happy beginning turns sour really quickly, right? And, and Job... One, later on, his, his wealth is taken away. Uh, his, his children die. They're all in one of these parties together, having, having a festival, having a feast together. A, a wind comes, probably a tornado comes, knocks down the house. All of his children die. Like, like can you imagine? This is, this is just happening one after the other. Chapter 2, his health is taken away, sitting in boils. I mean, just, just miserable suffering. And one has to ask, why? Why would a good man suffer so much trouble and turmoil? Why does God allow that? And as the reader of Job, we have a perspective that Job doesn't have. And so I think I, think I have the text printed out in your outline, but if you want to turn in your own copy of the scriptures, look at Job 1, 6 through 12. What we're really going to dive in on is, yeah, God's purpose behind the suffering. It says this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God, and especially in the Old Testament, usually refers to angelic beings. So you have like the cherubim, the seraphim, these, these angels that are presenting themselves before God, kind of like a almost like a cabinet meeting. Like you have God the king, and he has his hosts before him. Scripture calls God the God of hosts. These, these angels that are around him at his table, ready to do his bidding. So w- one of these types of meetings is taking place, right? Where all these angels are coming before the Lord, came to present, present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, 
also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased his land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This, this is a really strange scene. So you have this, this cabinet of God taking place where they're kind of, God is saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. Angels are going to go out and make it happen, his ministering spirits. And then Satan comes in and is among that cabinet. And some, some scholars write about that and make it seem as if Satan's kind of intruding on that meeting. But I don't think that's the best way to understand it. I think Satan, even in his opposition to God, is still... And what we'll see is still firmly under the authority and sovereignty of God himself. So Satan, even though he wants to work evil and destroy, he's actually still, in some sense, a ministering spirit of God. Not in the sense that he's trying to do good, but that God is going to use his evil for good. So some people like to think of uh, the Bible, kind of in terms of Star Wars. I don't know, is there any, are there any Star Wars fans in here? Kind of have the, you have the force, and there's a good side and the bad side, and they're kind of in this eternal struggle back and forth, like which one's going to win? And some people kind of impute that idea to Christianity. Like, oh, okay, well, you have God, he's good, and Satan, and he's bad, and they're kind of doing war with each other. And that is just not the picture that the Bible gives us at all. Satan, like the other angels, is firmly under the fixed authority of God. But what's going on here? So Satan says, or God actually says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered his blamelessness? Have you considered his righteousness? The word Satan literally means something like accuser, the one, the one who brings accusation. So Satan's role, what he's, going, what he's doing, going to and fro on the earth, is looking for, what seems to be, he's looking for religious hypocrisy. He's looking for, he's looking to tear down believers' faith, right? That's what Satan is about. And God's saying, have you considered Job? And then this is where the, the kind of conflict of the story picks up. Because Satan says, yeah, I've seen Job, but the only reason why Job worships you and is faithful to you is because, all, because of all the stuff he has, right? He says, Job worships God not for who he is, but for what he gives. That's the accusation. Satan says, God, if you take away Job's wealth, if you take away his health, if you take away all these things from him, he will curse you. He won't remain faithful to you. So what Satan's doing is he's, he's accusing the genuineness of Job's faith, and he's attacking the glory of God. Okay, why, why do I say that? Why is he attacking the glory of God? Well, he's saying that God is only, God's people only worship him because he gives them good things. 
It's not because they actually love him. It's not because they actually think he's glorious and he's righteous and he's worthy to be worshipped for who he is. Job's saying, no, no, no. The most righteous man on earth, the only reason he worships you is because you provide good things for him. You see how that's, that what Satan's trying to do is diminish the glory and worth of God. So the suffering of Job, here at the beginning, really is, it's a test. And here's the test. Here's, here's the question that comes to Job and comes to each of us as well. Will Job, will we, will we worship God for who he is or only for what he gives? Will, will we worship him for who he is or only what he gives? Now, when things are going really well in life, that test is almost impossible to take place. How can you know, right? But when suffering comes, when, when disease comes, when, when perplexing circumstances come, that's when the test comes. Will you worship God even if every blessing is taken away? That's what came to Job. That's the test Job's enduring. And that's the test we'll all endure to some degree or another. Listen to how um, Eric Ortland puts it. Another one of the Ortland brothers. There's, there's like so many, there's four Ortlands that write in different, different capacities, and this is one of them. Eric Ortland, he wrote a great book on Job. He says this, We are only nine verses into this long and complex book, but already we are near its heart. Do God's people love and fear him for his sake as an end in himself? Or is God used as a means to some other earthly end, such as having enjoyable lives? Will we enter into a relationship with God in which all we ultimately gain is God? The question is a very great one. For a relationship with God, for God's sake, is surely the only kind of relationship that will save us. Do God's people love and fear him for his sake as an end in himself? The reason why God is allowing this test to take place, and you, I would be surprised if none of us have that question reading it, right? I had the question as I was studying this text. It's like, is this, is this cruel? Like, why is God allowing this test? Why is he even, why is he even entertaining Satan's thoughts, right, during this conversation? And I think the only way we can understand it is if we realize that God's glory is the most important thing. God's glory is the most important thing in our lives, in the universe, in all things. If we understand that, we can understand Job and the suffering he endured, and Job and the suffering we endure. So this is um, Christopher Ash. I would really recommend Christopher Ash's commentary on Job. I think we have it in the bookstore especially if you're walking through suffering. It's just an excellent resource. He says this on why, does God, why is God allowing the test. He says, Satan, for all his malice, is doing something necessary to the glory of God. In some deep way, it's necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man, that God's worship is in no way dependent on God's gifts. So God's worship, God is great, greatly to be praised whether things are good or things are bad, whether blessings come, whether blessings are taken away, whether we're healthy or sick, right? When we worship God in the midst of all of that, what we're saying is God is greater than his gifts. 
and I, I will love him even if everything is taken away. And that faith, that faith brings great glory to God. So that's the purpose of Job's innocent suffering. Job, he's not suffering for the sake of his sin or discipline or anything like that. He's suffering, and his suffering is ultimately the purpose of the greater glory of God. As another quote by Christopher Ashe. He says, The glory of God is more important than your or my or Job's comfort. In some deep way, the sufferings of Job are necessary to redound to the glory of God. Really, the, the, the worshiper who's suffering, I was thinking about this as us, we're going in to sing here in a little bit, and we're going to sing praises to God, declaring how great God is. And I was just thinking that really, the worshiper who's suffering stands on holy ground. The worshiper who's disappointed in life circumstances, who's disillusioned by what, we, what, what you, you thought life would be like, and it's not what you thought your future would be like, and it's not, but yet you stand and you worship God for who he is, that's holy ground. Because what's happening in that moment is God's glory is on display for how great he is. I, um, I have a practice. I'm not like commending saying, oh, you should do this because sometimes it kind of weirds people out. But during uh, corporate worship time while we're singing, I like to look around. I like look around and look at different people. And um, yes, yeah, so some people know that you've like made eye contact with me and you're like, yeah, that's really weird. Can you stop doing that? Um, but I, I like to look around because I remember that even when my faith is weak and I see other people singing these truths, I'm reminded that it's real. And I'll never, never forget singing um, How Firm a Foundation, You Saints of the Lord. And the line goes, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. And I looked over and I, I saw the Jap family singing that, right? Like just enduring unimaginable loss. I thought, this, this is true. And I, just, and I just looked, and I just, I just started weeping. I was like done for the rest of, the rest of church that day because I was just reminded of, yes, this is, this is true. This God is great and glorious. Wow, if you're suffering, and you go, and not, not, with, a, not with a happy face. They weren't, it wasn't a, a glib sense of just, oh, yeah, everything's great. Let's clap our hands and smile and be happy. But maybe with tears running down your face, raising your hands, praising God, I'm like, that's, that's an encouragement to my faith. That brings glory to God. And that's what Job does, right? In Job 1, 20, he says, part of his, part of his mourning, he, he shaved his, after his suffering, he shaved his head, he, he put ashes on his head, he got down on his knees, and he said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's like, wow, you can say that. That brings great glory to God. So a couple, a couple of lessons just on Job's miserable suffering, and then we have to move on to thinking about his friends and thinking about what do we say to somebody who's suffering. The first one is embrace the mystery of providence when you're suffering and evil uh, come your way. Embrace the mystery of providence. Job, the whole book, is ignorant of the, the conversation God and Satan have. Job does not know why he's suffering the whole time. 
And that's instructive for us because often we do not know why we're suffering. We know the big picture that it's working for God's glory and our eternal good, but we don't know what specific purpose God has in our specific suffering. We have to learn to embrace the mystery of providence. It's a, um, a great Puritan phrase that I like called bitter providence, right? This idea that everything that comes in our lives comes from God, but that doesn't mean everything is sweet. Things can be bitter, coming, coming like, like medicine that you take, right? That's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's coming from God. I like um, Samuel Rutherford. He has an illustration about this, and he talks about how um, we're like a nail and suffering or disappointment, fill in the blank of trials of life, are like a hammer, right? That's just hammering us down. And from the nail's perspective, this is really, this is really terrible. Like there's nothing good going on. And it says this, the hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had any feeling and intelligence, could present another side of the story. For the nail knows the hammer only as an opponent a brutal, merciless enemy who lives to pound it into submission. That is the nail's view of the hammer, and is accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the hammer is held by the workman, and all resentment toward it will disappear. Think about that. The hammer of suffering in the hands of the master workman. That's what's going on when we're suffering, right? It feels just like a hammer beating down on us, but there is a workman behind it. We might not know his purpose right away. We might not know his purpose till we're in glory and we, we understand what was going on, but we can know that there's a workman behind it. Uh, lesson two, the, pop, the proper response to suffering is weeping and worship. So I was thinking about this and thinking about the... Um, the, the Jap family and just their, their story is that these two things aren't mutually exclusive, weeping and worship. Wor- corporate worship and singing, it's not just, a t- it's not just for happy people. Um, I think that's actually the best testimony there is of someone who's, uh, I read an article recently that said something like, what can, mis- what can miserable people sing at church? And I'm thankful that there's songs that we sing that talk about suffering, talk about, yeah, when circumstances are miserable, what we can sing that brings glory to God. The proper response to suffering is weeping and worship. You can do both of those things together. Okay, let's jump ahead to Job's misguided counselors. So this is, the bulk of the book is this dialogue between Job and his friends, Job 4 through 37. And I just want to be asking a question, like, if you... Think about this. You can maybe even write it down if if you're taking notes. If you were Job's friend, what would you say to him? What what would you say that you think would bring him comfort, encouragement? And think think about his circumstances, right? Just lost all of his children, his health. I mean, it's really outside of the suffering of Christ, probably the most severe um, innocent suffering that's ever occurred. If you were his friend, what would you say? That would encourage him. Think about that for a second. Job's friends begin 
by sitting with him in silence for seven days. And we'll see that that's actually the best thing that they did. After they, after they got out of silence, things went downhill pretty quickly. <laughs> so you, some of you guys who, you know, who do suffer or have suffered recently may attest to this, that sometimes the best thing somebody can do is just be quiet and, and, and be there, right, and pray. But I'm not good at that. I'm, I'm a talker, right? I like, to, I like to talk. I like to engage. I like to, well, have you, have you read Romans 8.28? Yes, I've read Romans 8.28. I know Romans 8.28. Oh, have you read this? Have you done this? And it's like, yes, I've done all that. And, and it's, it's unhelpful, right? Sometimes the best thing is to slow, slow down. Um, so Job's friends, they sit with him in silence uh, for, in the ground for seven days. But then they began to speak. And um, their, their counsel is very unhelpful. Because it has an imbalanced theology and, inappropri- and an inappropriate tone. Their, their, their counsel is based off of a faulty understanding of suffering, of God's purpose in suffering. And it's really summarized well uh, in Job 8. So I have this text printed out by a guy named Bildad. Bildad is one of his friends. If you're thinking about names for, for sons, you know, throw, throw Bildad in there. Just a great name. No, I'm just kidding. So Bildad, uh, this is Job 8, 1 through 7, and then 20 through 22. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Job at this point has expressed some of his questions, right? Like, why is God doing this to me? Uh, he's, He's expressed his mourning, his weeping, his loss. Now his friend's saying, why are you saying this? This is a great wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, you are pure and upright. Surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And although your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Behold, God will not reject the blameless man. Remember that word, blameless right? Job is blameless. His friend's saying God will not reject a blameless man. God will not bring suffering to someone who's blameless. That's the theology of Bildad. That's crippling. Oh my, that is, that is devastating for Job. Because then what's Job going to think about God? Job knows his own heart that he's blameless. So if he says that God will not pervert justice to a blameless man, Job must think that God perverts justice because he knows he's blameless, right? Do you see how unhelpful that theology is? Behold, God will not reject a blameless man or take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. The theology of Job's friends, in a nutshell, it goes something like this. God is just and therefore in this life, the righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish. That's, that's, that's his theology, right? And if you know your Bible well, you know that that is partially true. So I want to be careful, but if you read the book of Proverbs, right, there's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs that says, okay, if you, if you work hard, right, the lazy man ends up hungry, and the man who works hard ends up well-fed and wealthy. The book of, the book of Proverbs says this is true to an extent. You, do, you reap what you sow in this life to some degree. 
But the problem is when you take that and assume that's always the case. So then you see someone suffering and you assume they must have done something wrong. Or you're suffering and you assume you must have done something wrong. The book of Job corrects that and says, no, 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 that's not true. This is a general principle. That's not always the case. D.A. Carson says that Job's friends have a tight theology with no loose ends. I love that phrase. It's a tight theology. They have a system worked out, right? Where, okay, it makes sense. You're good, God gives you good. You're bad, God gives you bad. That's very logical, right? And that kind of makes sense of, you know, when, when we're in school, we do good, we get rewarded by the teacher. When we're bad, we're disciplined with our, with our parents. That's just how life works. But the book of Job tells us that God does not always work that way. Job actually has the same theology and the same questions because he thinks, well, God must be doing something unjust. I'm confused. Why, why is God causing me to suffer? And so this section of dialogue and kind of this idea of theology, it teaches us a lot. So the, the first lesson in this section is, and if you really take anything away, especially if you're suffering, I would just want you to take this away that Suffering is not always connected with personal sin. Suffering is not always connected with personal sin. If circumstances in your life are hard and bad, it is not necessarily connected with the fact that you've done something wrong to deserve that, to earn that. Job, Job was not being punished. Job wasn't even being disciplined right? Job was blameless and still experiencing suffering. So I, I, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, um, but resist the urge to look backward at your life, like playing your life and rewind. I don't know if you've ever done that before, like you kind of rewind in your mind choices that you've made and wonder if oh, maybe God is giving me hard things now because of how I sinned back then. Or maybe it's, maybe my spiritual state right now isn't what God wants it to be, and that's why things are hard, or this is hard. Be careful. That's not, that's not what God does. That's not how he acts. Don't, suffering isn't a puzzle. Your personal suffering isn't a puzzle to be solved, right? It's, it's a mystery, and it's supposed to lead us to humble trust in God. Don't try to solve the puzzle of your suffering. Oh, if I just get these pieces together right, then God will bless me. It'll drive you, drive you insane. There's a lesson two. Be, be a humble and prayerful counselor. Um, I, I recently read a book called, um, I think it's called Sinners, Sufferers, and Saints. It's on like biblical counseling. And it was so helpful. It was just talking about the, the need to counsel humbly. And uh, he gives several steps, like, so this is, what would you say if you're Job's friend, you know, how, how to help someone who's suffering? I think one would be, listen with patience. So a quote from that book, we are often less patient with a sufferer's process of confusion and lament than God is. We are often less patient with somebody's struggle than God is. If you read the Psalms, read Psalm 88. Psalm 88, it begins dark. It's dark in the middle, and it ends dark. 
which is strange, right? You're used to, okay, you're reading the psalm, and you're thinking, okay, it starts really hard, but then at the end, surely there's going to be a resolution, and God is my strength and my shield, and I love those psalms, actually. I, I have trouble with Psalm 88, because it ends, it doesn't end that way. It ends in, in with being, with struggling, right? I think you have to be a friend that's okay with your friend not getting to some level of emotional happiness uh, in the moment while counseling. Don't assume to have the answer. Don't, um, don't compare suffering. So I, this, you know, I don't want to use personal examples. I don't think I'm suffering uh, tremendously. But th- this happened twice on the day that I broke my ankle. It was, it was so funny. I was like sitting there. I just broke my ankle. And I was sitting in a chair, really thinking I was about to pass out. I was just in so much pain. And then one of my colleagues came up and talked about how he tore his Achilles playing basketball. And I should be really thankful that I didn't tear my Achilles. And I was just like, okay, thanks. Yeah, that's, that's true, I guess. I'm thankful I just broke my ankle and didn't tear my Achilles. But that doesn't, that doesn't really help me right now in this moment, right? That you suffered more than I did. And then I got to the, the orthopedic clinic. And I thought, surely, these, you know, these folks are... They're trained, and they were. They, they, they were excellent. I was in and out, and so I'm not at all complaining about that experience. But the, one of the nurses started talking about how her son was in a coma growing up and how I should be, like, thankful that at least it's just my foot. And, and you know, I'm, just, I'm just thinking, like, I, yes, that's true, but unhelpful. So as you're counseling people, just think, not everything that's true is helpful in the moment, right? There are, there's true theology, misapplied is, un, is unhelpful, okay? And I think the big thing is to just, the best you can, remind your friends of God's presence and activity. God is there. He has a plan. Suffering isn't random. The last thing I want to talk about in Job is the last section, Job's majestic God. This is Job 38 through 42. This is how the book ends. So for, for all of these chapters, Job is perplexed, confused about what's going on. His friends are talking back and forth. Why, am I su- why are you suffering? You must have sinned. No, I haven't sinned. Oh, you must have sinned. No, I haven't sinned. I don't know why I'm suffering. And finally, in Job 38, God speaks. And we can all take a breath like, yes, God is going to speak. But his speeches aren't exactly what we expect. We expect God to tell Job why he's suffering. We expect him to maybe fill him in on the conversation between him and Satan and fill him in on why he's enduring what he's enduring. That would make sense, right? God doesn't tell him. He still, God still never tells him why he's suffering. But instead, he reveals who he is. God gives Job a greater vision of himself. He gives two speeches. The first speech he talks about his wisdom and creation. So this is Job 38, 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Um, 39, 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings to the south? It's almost like he takes Job on a tour of the zoo and says, Have you created all of these animals? Do you understand how they work? Did you set how deep the ocean is? Do you know, do, do you know, as one verse says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth 
Have you considered that? I was like, no, actually, I haven't considered the mountain goats. I'm dealing with a lot of suffering. But he's saying, Job, I know in the most remote part of the world when the mountain goats give birth. Do you not think I know about your suffering? Do you not think I've planned this? Do you not think that I know what you're feeling? God alone is the majestic creator. And the final speech, the final way God answers this problem is in Job 41, where he talks about the strange creature, Leviathan. And scholars debate on what exactly Leviathan is. What's clear from the text is that it's a fire-breathing sea dragon, which is crazy, right? And the book of Job is very, it's very strange in that regard. But what, what this is dealing with, Leviathan is probably, it's probably a picture, an image of chaos, evil, and Satan himself. And God's speech, what he says is that the Leviathan is real, though Leviathan harms you, causes suffering. He's a terrifying beast. He's under my control. Can you draw, this is Job 40, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The book of Job ends with God coming and destroying Leviathan, promising to come and destroy Leviathan. So it really ends with this picture of Job doesn't know why he's suffering, but he knows that God is sovereign over suffering, and he knows that God will come and end suffering one day. And it ends us with wanting more, which is exactly what we get when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and pierces Leviathan. That's the final lesson, is that Jesus is the greater Job. Jesus is the one who has come and pierced Leviathan. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. Christ's redemptive work crushes the serpent's head, and he will one day return to complete his work. So as we, as we suffer and as we wait, like Job, let, let's commit to praising God for who he is, not just what he gives. And I want to end with Job 1:21, where we begin. It said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for these, um, these folks here. Thank you, Lord, that they came early and wanted to hear a teaching from your word. We thank you for the book of Job and what it, what it teaches us about you. Lord, I pray especially for those in this room who are suffering, uh, for those who are, have suffering that's come on recently, or those who are suffering, just prolonged um, illness, struggle, disappointment, confusion. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would use the book of Job to build up their faith. And I pray you would right now, even by your spirit, use something, something from your word or from this talk to build them up and lift their eyes so that they can worship you, the majestic God who's sovereign over all. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for, for coming and let's enjoy some donuts and go in and sing to the Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Thanks for, uh, for coming back to class two before we uh, 
jump in, just to update. So I, did, I broke my ankle on Tuesday, so that's why I have this nice scooter here, and I was uh, telling some of, the, some of the other folks, it was funny because I lead a community group, and so we always talk about the sermon from the Sunday before, and so I broke my ankle on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, leading a small group discussion on the lame beggar, and I was like, that, that just uh, put it in a new context for me, you know, of my, of my, of my need. It's pretty funny, and I was just thinking, Lord, I, I don't know what you're really trying to teach me with this, but it's, it's funny either way, so anyway. Yep, so if I, uh, if I drop something, like if I drop my Bible, you know, if I could just designate one of you guys to help me and come and pick it up, I'd appreciate that. But anyway, um, I'm grateful you came back to session two of our class, um, What About Evil? Uh, I hope the, hope the first class was informative and, and helpful. And just want to recap for a little bit and then dive in. This, this class will be about uh, an overview and theology of Job. And I have some outlines, so if you didn't get an outline, you can run to the back table by the coffee and get one. Um, the, the first class, so the, the big idea of the class is kind of trying to answer a question. So the problem of evil, it, it really narrows down on this question of, if God, why evil? So if God is all good, wouldn't he want to stop evil? And if God is all powerful, couldn't he stop evil? If those two things are true, which they are in the Bible, God is all good and God is all powerful, why is there evil? That, that in a nutshell, is the, the problem of evil. And it's what some authors would say is the, the, the strongest argument against Christianity. Now, I think, as we talked about, as you guys talked about last week, and as we'll talk about today and next week, the Bible provides really good answers, and the Bible meets that objection. But it is, if I'm talking to somebody on the street about, you know, what they think about Christianity, that's pretty, if someone's not a Christian, that will almost always be one of the questions that comes up. How can you believe in a God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? It's a question that we don't want to, we don't want to just sort of, um, I guess, avoid because it's difficult, right? We want, we want to dive into these tough questions with confidence that the Bible actually speaks to this. We don't have to avoid the hard things. We can dive into the hard things because Scripture, uh, scripture is sufficient and it's clear and it teaches us the answers to these questions. And the big, um, I guess, answer that Jake kind of talked about from the, from the book that we're basing this class off of is the greater glory defense. And just in a nutshell, he's saying, well, God, for the sake of his own glory, allows suffering and evil because his glory is displayed in greater ways because of suffering and evil that wouldn't be displayed without it. Does, it. does that kind of make sense? And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit as we go through Job. But the big idea is that God's glory is displayed, for instance, in redemption. And what he's done for us in Christ. We praise God for his glorious grace. But grace doesn't make sense and doesn't come to us without the, the black backdrop of sin and death and evil. Does that make sense? And so God has a great purpose for this. But this session uh, doesn't aim to answer the problem of evil with philosophy, but with a story. 
Uh, so we're going to talk about the story of one man, his suffering, and his God. Uh, the outline of Job I have there in your, in your notes. This is what we're going to walk through. We're going to kind of just slowly, well not really slowly, it's actually going to be super fast, just walking through a whole theology of the book of Job uh, in three, three parts. So here's the outline of Job I have for you. Part one is Job's miserable suffering. This is chapters one through three. Uh, second, Job's misguided counselors, chapters four through 37. And then three, Job's majestic God, chapters 38 through 42. I've included at the end of each section, we'll talk about the, the story a little bit, the text, and then I'm, at, I'm adding what I'm calling lessons at the end of each section, kind of application points, doctrines, things that this book teaches us about suffering and evil that would be helpful to us. And I really, um, you know, if last class, I think Jake mentioned the two um, types of questioners when it comes to the problem of evil. You have the armchair questioner, kind of the, you know, the bearded man sitting in the armchair with a pipe, uh, questioning philosophically what is the problem of evil. And those are good questions to have. But he also talked about the wheelchair sufferer, right? Or the scooter sufferer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, somebody, somebody who's experienced suffering and evil and doesn't just ask why is there so much suffering and evil in the world, but the question is, why me? Why me, Lord? I'm sure several of you have asked that question or asking that question right now, if you're honest with yourself, if you're experiencing suffering, why me? Job asked that question. Job was very perplexed about that question. And this book is helpful for addressing not just the armchair questioner, but the wheelchair questioner. So my, my hope is that as we go through this material, it'd both be informative, it'd help you, you'd learn about the book of Job, but also would encourage your faith. It would encourage you as you seek to have faith in the midst of suffering, and it would encourage you and help you to be a friend to those who suffer. So we'll, and ultimately it would help you as it points you to the God who's sovereign over suffering and evil. So that's kind of where we're going. Okay, so Job 1, the book of Job begins with Job's prosperity. So Job 1, this is the first several verses, says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. A little phrase, the people of the East. Job uh, probably wasn't a Jew. He probably lived in the time of the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But he lived away from where they were. So he's a, what the Bible calls a God-fearer. Somebody who's outside of the covenant people of God but has a sense of who God is and is, is a fearer of God. That's scholars' best guess. We're not really sure about Job's historical placement, but that, that's what people think. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of, um, house of each one of his day, on, on his day, and they would send an invite and their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So the book of Job begins 
with this man Job, who's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. That's, that's a combination you don't see a lot, is it? Someone who's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. But Job just begins by showing that that is possible. H- having, having wealth doesn't necessarily mean you've sold out or you're, or you're not godly or something like that. But he's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. But the most important description of Job comes in verse 1, that the man was blameless. So what does that what does that mean? How can somebody be blameless? Well, the word blameless, it, it doesn't mean sinless. So it's not like Job never sinned during his lifetime. What the word blameless means is something like personal integrity. Like he's the same on the inside as he is on the outside. So that's why Paul in Philippians 3 can say, according to the law, I was blameless. Well, really, Paul? Like you, you never sinned? You never coveted? No, it's, it's not saying that, but it's saying, I am genuine. Like, there's no secret sin that I'm hiding. What I am on the outside, the face I'm putting in front of others is who I truly am on the inside. And that's really important because in the story, Job's friends are going to say, well, the reason you're suffering must be because there's some secret sin that we don't know about. And Job, the whole time, says, no, I'm I'm blameless. I'm not sinless, but I'm, I'm blameless of some secret sin that you think I'm, I'm hiding. That's what that means. He's, he's blameless. And then, as you guys know, the story goes, Job's happy beginning turns sour really quickly, right? And, and Job won later on. His, his wealth is taken away. Uh, his, his children die. They're all in one of these parties together, having, having a festival, having a feast together. A, a wind comes, probably a tornado comes, knocks down the house. All of his children die. Like, like can you imagine? This is, this is just happening one after the other. Chapter 2, his health is taken away, sitting in boils. I mean, just, just miserable suffering. And one has to ask, Why? Why would a good man suffer so much trouble and turmoil? Why does God allow that? And as the reader of Job, we have a perspective that Job doesn't have. And so I think I I have the text printed out in your outline, but if you want to turn in your own copy of the scriptures, look at Job 1, 6 through 12. What we're really going to dive in on is, yeah, God's purpose behind the suffering It says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God, and especially in the Old Testament, usually refers to angelic beings. So you have like the cherubim, the seraphim, these these angels that are presenting themselves before God, kind of like a almost like a cabinet meeting. Like you have God the king, and he has his hosts before him. Scripture calls God the God of hosts. These these angels that are around him at his table, ready to do his bidding. So one of these types of meetings is taking place, right? Where all these angels are coming before the Lord, came to present, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased his land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This, this is a really strange scene. So you have this, this cabinet of God taking place where they're kind of, God is saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. Angels are going to go out and make it happen, his ministering spirits. And then Satan comes in and is among that cabinet. And some, some scholars write about that and make it seem as if Satan's kind of intruding on that meeting. But I don't think that's the best way to understand it. I think Satan, even in his opposition to God, is still, and what we'll see, is still firmly under the authority and sovereignty of God himself. So Satan, even though he wants to work evil and destroy He's actually still, in some sense, a ministering spirit of God. Not in the sense that he's trying to do good, but that God is going to use his evil for good. So some people like to think of uh, the Bible kind of in terms of Star Wars. I don't know, is any, are there any Star Wars fans in here? Gonna have the, you have the force, and there's a good side and the bad side, and they're kind of in this eternal struggle back and forth, like which one's going to win? And some people kind of impute that idea to Christianity. Like, oh, okay, well, you have God, he's good, and Satan, and he's bad, and they're kind of doing war with each other. And that is just not the picture that the Bible gives us at all. Satan, like the other angels, is firmly under the fixed authority of God. But what's going on here? So Satan says, or God actually says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered his blamelessness? Have you considered his righteousness? The word Satan literally means something like accuser, the one, the one who brings accusation. So Satan's role, what he's, going, what he's doing, going to and fro on the earth, is looking for, what seems to be, he's looking for religious hypocrisy. He's looking for, he's looking to tear down believers' faith, right? That's what Satan is about. And God's saying, have you considered Job? And then this is where the, the kind of conflict of the story picks up. Because Satan says, yeah, I've seen Job, but the only reason why Job worships you and is faithful to you is because of all the stuff he has, right? He says, Job worships God not for who he is, but for what he gives. That's the accusation. Satan says, God, if you take away Job's wealth, if you take away his health, if you take away all these things from him, he will curse you. He won't remain faithful to you. So what Satan's doing is he's, he's accusing the genuineness of Job's faith, and he's attacking the glory of God. Okay, why, why do I say that? Why is he attacking the glory of God? Well, he's saying that God is only, God's people only worship him because he gives them good things. It's not because they actually love him. It's not because they actually think he's glorious and he's righteous and he's worthy to be worshiped for who he is. Job's saying, no, 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 the most righteous man on earth, the only reason he worships you is because you provide good things for him. You see how that's, that, 
what Satan's trying to do is diminish the glory and worth of God. So the suffering of Job, here at the beginning, really is it's a test. And here's the test. Here's, here's the question that comes to Job and comes to each of us as well. Will Job, will we, will we worship God for who he is or only for what he gives? Will, will we worship him for who he is or only what he gives? Now, when things are going really well in life, that test is almost impossible to take place. How can you know, right? But when suffering comes, when, when disease comes, when, when perplexing circumstances come, that's when the test comes. Will you worship God even if every blessing is taken away? That's what came to Job. That's the test Job's enduring. And that's the test we'll all endure to some degree or another. Listen to how um, Eric Ortland puts it. Another one of the Ortland brothers. There's, uh, there's like so many, there's four Ortlands that write in different, different capacities, and this is one of them. Eric Ortland, he wrote a great book on Job. He says this, we are only nine verses into this long and complex book, but already we are near its heart. Do God's people love and fear him for his sake as an end in himself? Or is God used as a means to some other earthly end, such as having enjoyable lives? Will we enter into a relationship with God in which all we ultimately gain is God? The question is a very great one. For a relationship with God, for God's sake, is surely the only kind of relationship that will save us. Do God's people love and fear him for his sake as an end in himself? The reason why God is allowing this test to take place, and you, I would be surprised if none of us have that question reading it, right? I had the question as I was studying this text. It's like, is this, is this cruel? Like, why is God allowing this test? Why is he even, why is he even entertaining Satan's thoughts, right, during this conversation? And I think the only way we can understand it is if we realize that God's glory is the most important thing. God's glory is the most important thing in our lives, in the universe, in all things. If we understand that, we can understand Job and the suffering he endured, and Job and the suffering we endure. So this is um, Christopher Ash. I would really recommend Christopher Ash's commentary on Job. I think we have it in the bookstore especially if you're walking through suffering. It's just an excellent resource. He says this on why, does God, why is God allowing the test. He says, Satan, for all his malice, is doing something necessary to the glory of God. In some deep way, it's necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man, that God's worship is in no way dependent on God's gifts. So God's worship, God is great, greatly to be praised whether things are good or things are bad, whether blessings come, whether blessings are taken away, whether we're healthy or sick, right? When we worship God in the midst of all of that, what we're saying is God is greater than his gifts. And I, I will love him even if everything is taken away. And that faith, that faith brings great glory to God. So that's the purpose of Job's innocent suffering. Job, he's not suffering for the sake of his sin or discipline or anything like that. 
He's suffering, and his suffering is ultimately the purpose of the greater glory of God. As another quote by Christopher Ashe. He says, The glory of God is more important than your or my or Job's comfort. In some deep way, the sufferings of Job are necessary to redound to the glory of God. Really, the, the, the worshiper who's suffering, I was thinking about this as us, we're going in to sing here in a little bit, and we're going to sing praises to God, declaring how great God is. And I was just thinking that really the worshiper who's suffering stands on holy ground. The worshiper who's disappointed in life circumstances, who's disillusioned by what, we, what, what you, you thought life would be like and it's not, what you thought your future would be like and it's not, but yet you stand and you worship God for who he is, that's holy ground. Because what's happening in that moment is God's glory is on display for how great he is. I, um, I have a practice. I'm not like commending saying, oh, you should do this because sometimes it kind of weirds people out. But during uh, corporate worship time while we're singing, I like to look around. I like look around and look at different people. And um, yes, yeah, so, some people know that you've like made eye contact with me and you're like, yeah, that's really weird. Can you stop doing that? Um, but I, I like to look around because I remember that even when my faith is weak and I see other people singing these truths, I'm reminded that it's real. And I'll never, never forget singing um, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord. And the line goes, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. And I looked over and I, I saw the Jap family singing that, right? Like just enduring unimaginable loss. I thought, this, this is true. And I, just, and I just looked and I just, I just started weeping. I was like done for the rest of, the rest of church that day because I was just reminded of, yes, this is, this is true. This God is great and glorious. Wow, if you're suffering and you go, and not, not, with, a, not with a happy face. They weren't, it wasn't a, a glib sense of just, oh yeah, everything's great. Let's clap our hands and smile and be happy. But maybe with tears running down your face, raising your hands, praising God. I'm like, that's, that's an encouragement to my faith. That brings glory to God. And that's what Job does, right? In Job 1, 20, he says, part of his, part of his mourning, he, he shaved his, after his suffering, he shaved his head, he, he put ashes on his head, he got down on his knees, and he said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's like, wow, you can say that. That brings great glory to God. So a couple, a couple of lessons just on Job's miserable suffering, and then we have to move on to thinking about his friends and thinking about what do we say to somebody who's suffering. The first one is embrace the mystery of providence when you're suffering and evil uh, come your way. Embrace the mystery of providence. Job, the whole book, is ignorant of the, the conversation God and Satan have. Job does not know why he's suffering the whole time. And that's instructive for us because often we do not know why we're suffering. We know the big picture that it's working for God's glory and our eternal good, but we don't know what specific purpose God has in our specific suffering. 
we have to learn to embrace the mystery of providence. It's a, um, a great Puritan phrase that I like called bitter providence, right? This idea that everything that comes in our lives comes from God, but that doesn't mean everything is sweet. Things can be bitter, coming, coming like, like medicine that you take, right? That's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's coming from God. I like um, Samuel Rutherford. He has an illustration about this, and he talks about how um, we're like a nail and suffering or disappointment, fill in the blank of trials of life, are like a hammer, right? That's just hammering us down. And from the nail's perspective, this is really, this is really terrible. Like there's nothing good going on. And it says this, the hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had any feeling and intelligence, could present another side of the story. For the nail knows the hammer only as an opponent, a brutal, merciless enemy who lives to pound it into submission. That is the nail's view of the hammer, and it is accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the hammer is held by the workman, and all resentment toward it will disappear. Think about that. The hammer of suffering in the hands of the master workman. That's what's going on when we're suffering, right? It feels just like a hammer beating down on us, but there is a workman behind it. We might not know his purpose right away. We might not know his purpose till we're in glory and we, we understand what was going on, but we can know that there's a workman behind it. Uh, lesson two, the, pop, the proper response to suffering is weeping and worship. So I was thinking about this and thinking about the, um, the, the Jap family and just their, their story is that these two things aren't mutually exclusive, weeping and worship. Wor- corporate worship and singing, it, it's, not just a t- it's not just for happy people. Um, I think that's actually the best testimony there is of someone who's, uh, I read an article recently that said something like, what can, miser- what can miserable people sing at church? And I'm thankful that there's songs that we sing that talk about suffering, talk about, yeah, when circumstances are miserable, what we can sing that brings glory to God. The proper response to suffering is weeping and worship. You can do both of those things together. Okay, let's jump ahead to Job's misguided counselors. So this is the bulk of the book is this dialogue between Job and his friends, Job 4 through 37. And I just want to be asking a question, like, if you... Think about this. You can maybe even write it down if, you, if you're taking notes. If you were Job's friend, what would you say to him? What, what would you say that you think would bring him comfort, encouragement? And think, of, think about his circumstances, right? Just lost all of his children, his health. I mean, it's really outside of the suffering of Christ, probably the most severe um, innocent suffering that's ever occurred. If you were his friend, what would you say? That would encourage him. Think about that for a second. Job's friends begin by sitting with him in silence for seven days. And we'll see that that's actually the best thing that they did. After they, after they got out of silence, things went downhill pretty quickly. <laughs> so you, some of you guys who, you know, who do suffer or have suffered recently, 
may attest to this, that sometimes the best thing somebody can do is just be quiet and, and, and be there, right, and pray. But I'm not good at that. I'm a, I'm a talker, right? I like, to, I like to talk. I like to engage. I like to, well, have you, have you read Romans 8.28? Yes, I've read Romans 8.28. I know Romans 8.28. Oh, have you read this? Have you done this? And it's like, yes, I've done all that. And, and it's, it's unhelpful, right? Sometimes the best thing is to slow, slow down. Um, so Job's friends, they sit with them in silence uh, for, in the ground for seven days. But then they began to speak. And um, their, their counsel is very unhelpful because it has an imbalanced theology and, and an inappropriate tone. Their, their, their counsel is based off of a faulty understanding of suffering, of God's purpose in suffering. And it's really summarized well uh, in Job 8. So I have this text printed out by a guy named Bildad. Bildad is one of his friends. If you're thinking about names for, for sons, you know, throw, throw Bildad in there. Just a great name. No, I'm just kidding. So Bildad, uh, this is Job 8, 1 through 7, and then 20 through 22. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Job, at this point, has expressed some of his questions, right? Like, why is God doing this to me? Uh, he's, he's expressed his mourning, his weeping, his loss. Now his friend's saying, why are you saying this? This is a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, you are pure and upright. Surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And although your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Behold, God will not reject the blameless man. Remember that word blameless, right? Job is blameless. His friend saying, God will not reject a blameless man. God will not bring suffering to someone who's blameless. That's the theology of Bildad. That's crippling. Oh my, that is, that is devastating for Job. Because then what's Job going to think about God? Job knows his own heart that he's blameless. So if he says that God will not pervert justice to a blameless man, Job must think that God perverts justice. Because he knows he's blameless, right? Do you see how unhelpful that theology is? Behold, God will not reject a blameless man or take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. The theology of Job's friends, in a nutshell, it goes something like this. God is just and therefore in this life, the righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish. That's, that's, that's his theology, right? And if you know your Bible well, you know that that is partially true. So I want to be careful, but if you read the book of Proverbs, right, there's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs that says, okay, if you, if you work hard, right, the lazy man ends up hungry, and the man who works hard ends up well-fed and wealthy. The book of, the book of Proverbs says this is true to an extent. You, do, you reap what you sow in this life to some degree. But the problem is when you take that and assume that's always the case. So then you see someone suffering and you assume they must have done something wrong. Or you're suffering and you assume you must have done something wrong. The book of Job corrects that and says, no, 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 that's not true. 
This is a general principle. That's not always the case. D.A. Carson says that Job's friends have a tight theology with no loose ends. I love that phrase. It's a tight theology. They have a system worked out, right? Where, okay, it makes sense. You're good, God gives you good. You're bad, God gives you bad. That's very logical, right? And that kind of makes sense of, you know, when, when we're in school, we do good. We get rewarded by the teacher. When we're bad, we're disciplined with our, with our parents. That's just how life works. But the book of Job tells us that God does not always work that way. Job actually has the same theology and the same questions because he thinks, well, God must be doing something unjust. I'm confused. Why, why is God causing me to suffer? And so this section of dialogue and kind of this idea of theology, it teaches us a lot. So the, the first lesson in this section is, and if you really take anything away, especially if you're suffering, I would just want you to take this away that suffering is not always connected with personal sin. Suffering is not always connected with personal sin. If circumstances in your life are hard and bad, it is not necessarily connected with the fact that you've done something wrong to deserve that, to earn that. Job, Job was not being punished. Job wasn't even being disciplined, right? Job was blameless and still experiencing suffering. So I, I, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, um, but resist the urge to look backward at your life, like playing your life and rewind. I don't know if you guys ever done that before. Like you kind of rewind in your mind choices that you've made and wonder if maybe God is giving me hard things now because of how I sinned back then. Or maybe it's maybe my spiritual state right now isn't what God wants it to be, and that's why things are hard or this is hard. Be careful. That's not, that's not what God does. That's not how he acts. Don't, suffering isn't a puzzle. Your personal suffering isn't a puzzle to be solved, right? It's, it's a mystery, and it's supposed to lead us to humble trust in God. Don't try to solve the puzzle of your suffering. Oh, if I just get these pieces together right, then God will bless me. It'll drive you, drive you insane. There's a lesson two. Be, be a humble and prayerful counselor. Um, I, I recently read a book called, um, I think it's called Sinners, Sufferers, and Saints. It's on like biblical counseling. And it was so helpful. It was just talking about the, the need to counsel humbly. And uh, he gives several steps. Like, so this is, what would you say if you're Job's friend? You know, how, how to help someone who's suffering. I think one would be, listen with patience. So a quote from that book. We are often less patient with a sufferer's process of confusion and lament than God is. We're often less patient with somebody's struggle than God is. If you read the Psalms, read Psalm 88. Psalm 88, it begins dark, it's dark in the middle, and it ends dark. Which is strange, right? You're used to, okay, you're reading the psalm and you're thinking, okay, it starts really hard, but then at the end, surely there's going to be a, a resolution and God is my strength and my shield. And I love those psalms, actually. I, I have trouble with Psalm 88 because it ends, it doesn't end that way. It ends in, in with being, with struggling, right? I think you have to be a friend that's okay with your friend not getting to some level of emotional happiness. 
uh, in the moment while counseling. Don't assume to have the answer. Don't, um, don't compare suffering. So I, this, you know, I don't want to use personal examples. I don't think I'm suffering uh, tremendously. But th- this happened twice on the day that I broke my ankle. It was, it was so funny. I was like sitting there. I just broke my ankle. And I was sitting in a chair, really thinking I was about to pass out. I was just in so much pain. And then one of my colleagues came up and talked about how he tore his Achilles playing basketball. And I should be really thankful that I didn't tear my Achilles. And I was just like, okay, thanks. Yeah, that's, that's true, I guess. I'm thankful I just broke my ankle and didn't tear my Achilles. But that doesn't, that doesn't really help me right now in this moment, right? That you suffered more than I did. And then I got to the, the orthopedic clinic. And I thought, surely, these, you know, these folks are they're trained, and they were, they, they were excellent. I was in and out, and so I'm not at all complaining about that experience. But the, one of the nurses started talking about how her son was in a coma growing up, and how I should be, like, thankful that at least it's just my foot. And, and, and you know, I'm, just, I'm just thinking, like, I, yes, that's true, but unhelpful. So as you're counseling people, just think, not everything that's true is helpful, in the moment, right? There are, there's true theology, misapplied is, un, is unhelpful, okay? And I think the big thing is to just, the best you can, remind your friends of God's presence and activity. God is there. He has a plan. Suffering isn't random. The last thing I want to talk about in Job is the last section, Job's majestic God. This is Job 38, through 42. This is how the book ends. So for, for all of these chapters, Job is perplexed, confused about what's going on. His friends are talking back and forth. Why, am I su- why are you suffering? You must have sinned. No, I haven't sinned. Oh, you must have sinned. No, I haven't sinned. I don't know why I'm suffering. And finally, in Job 38, God speaks. And we can all take a breath like, yes, God is going to speak. But his speeches aren't exactly what we expect. We expect God to tell Job why he's suffering. We expect him to maybe fill him in on the conversation between him and Satan and fill him in on why he's enduring what he's enduring. That would make sense, right? God doesn't tell him. He still, God still never tells him why he's suffering. But instead, he reveals who he is. God gives Job a greater vision of himself. He gives two speeches. The first speech he talks about his wisdom and creation. So this is Job 38, 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Um, 39, 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings to the south? It's almost like he takes Job on a tour of the zoo and says, Have you created all of these animals? Do you understand how they work? Did you set how deep the ocean is? Do you know? Do, do you know? There's one verse says, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Have you considered that? I was like, No, actually, I haven't considered the mountain goats. I'm dealing with a lot of suffering. But he's saying, Job, I know in the most remote part of the world when the mountain goats give birth. Do you not think I know about your suffering? Do, do you not think? I've planned this. Do you not think that I know what you're feeling? God alone is the majestic creator. And the final speech, the final way God answers this problem 
is in Job 41, where he talks about the strange creature, Leviathan. And scholars debate on what exactly Leviathan is. What's clear from the text is that it's a fire-breathing sea dragon, which is crazy, right? And the book of Job is very, it's very strange in that regard. But what, what this is dealing with, Leviathan is probably, it's probably a picture, an image of chaos, evil, and Satan himself. And God's speech, what he says is that the Leviathan is real, though Leviathan harms you, causes suffering. He's a terrifying beast. He's under my control. Can you draw, this is Job 40, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The book of Job ends with God coming and destroying Leviathan, promising to come and destroy Leviathan. So it really ends with this picture of Job doesn't know why he's suffering, but he knows that God is sovereign over suffering, and he knows that God will come and end suffering one day. And it ends us with wanting more, which is exactly what we get when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and pierces Leviathan. That's the final lesson, is that Jesus is the greater Job. Jesus is the one who has come and pierced Leviathan. 1 John 3 eight. the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. Christ's redemptive work crushes the serpent's head, and he will one day return to complete his work. So as we, as we suffer and as we wait, like Job, let, let's commit to praising God for who he is, not just what he gives. And I want to end with Job 1:21, where we begin. It said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for these, um, these folks here. Thank you, Lord, that they came early and wanted to hear a teaching from your word. We thank you for the book of Job and what it, what it teaches us about you. Lord, I pray especially for those in this room who are suffering, uh, for those who are, have suffering that's come on recently, or those who are suffering, just prolonged um, illness, struggle, disappointment, confusion. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would use the book of Job to build up their faith. And I pray you would right now, even by your spirit, use something, something from your word or from this talk to build them up and lift their eyes so that they can worship you, the majestic God who's sovereign over all. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for, for coming, and let's enjoy some donuts, and go in and sing to the Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Thanks for, uh, for coming back to class two. Before we uh, jump in, just an update. So I, did, I broke my ankle on Tuesday, so that's why I have this nice scooter here, and I was uh, telling some of the, some of the other Folks, it was funny because I lead a community group, and so we always talk about the sermon from the Sunday before. And so I broke my ankle on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, leading a small group discussion on the lame beggar. And it was like, that, that just uh, put it in a new context for me, you know, of my, of my, of my need. It's pretty funny, and I was just thinking, Lord, I don't know what you're really trying to teach me with this, but it's, it's funny either way. So anyway, 
Yep, so if I, uh, if I drop something, like if I drop my Bible, you know, if I could just designate one of you guys to help me and come and pick it up, I'd appreciate that. But anyway, um, I'm grateful you came back to session two of our class, um, What About Evil? Uh, I hope the, hope the first class was informative and, and helpful. And just want to recap for a little bit and then dive in. This, this class will be about uh, an overview and theology of Job. And I have some outlines. So if you didn't get an outline, you can run to the back table by the coffee and get one. Um, the, the first class, so the, the big idea of the class is kind of trying to answer a question. So the problem of evil, it, it really narrows down on this question of, if God, why evil? So if God is all good, wouldn't he want to stop evil? And if God is all powerful, couldn't he stop evil? If those two things are true, which they are in the Bible, God is all good and God is all powerful, why is there evil? That, that in a nutshell, is the, the problem of evil. And it's what some authors would say is the, the, the strongest argument against Christianity. Now, I think, as we talked about, as you guys talked about last week, and as we'll talk about today and next week, the Bible provides really good answers, and the Bible meets that objection. But it is, if I'm talking to somebody on the street about, you know, what they think about Christianity, that's pretty, if someone's not a Christian, that will almost always be one of the questions that comes up. How can you believe in a God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? It's a question that we don't want to just sort of, um, I guess, avoid because it's difficult, right? We want to we dive into these tough questions with confidence that the Bible actually speaks to this. We don't have to avoid the hard things. We can dive into the hard things because Scripture, uh, scripture is sufficient and it's clear and it teaches us the answers to these questions. And the big, um, I guess, answer that Jake kind of talked about from the, from the book that we're basing this class off of is the greater glory defense. And just in a nutshell, he's saying, well, God, for the sake of his own glory, allows suffering and evil because his glory is displayed in greater ways because of suffering and evil that wouldn't be displayed without it. Does that kind of make sense? And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit as we go through Job. But the big idea is that God's glory is displayed, for instance, in redemption. And what he's done for us in Christ. We praise God for his glorious grace. But grace doesn't make sense and doesn't come to us without the, the black backdrop of sin and death and evil. Does that make sense? And so God has a great purpose for this. But this session... Uh, doesn't aim to answer the problem of evil with philosophy, but with a story. Uh, so we're going to talk about the story of one man, his suffering, and his God. Uh, the outline of Job I have there in your, in your notes. This is what we're going to walk through. We're going to kind of just slowly, well not really slowly, it's actually going to be super fast, just walking through a whole theology of the book of Job uh, in three, three parts. So here's the outline of Job I have for you. Part one is Job's miserable suffering. This is chapters one through three. Uh, second, Job's misguided counselors, chapters four through 37. 
And then three, Job's majestic God, chapters 38 through 42. I've included the end of each section. We'll talk about the, the story a little bit, the text, and then I'm, I'm adding what I'm calling lessons at the end of each section, kind of application points, doctrines, things that this book teaches us about suffering and evil that would be helpful to us. And I really, um, you know, if last class, I think Jake mentioned the two um, types of questioners when it comes to the problem of evil. You have the armchair questioner, kind of the, you know, the bearded man sitting in the armchair with a pipe, uh, questioning philosophically what is the problem of evil. And those are good questions to have. But he also talked about the wheelchair sufferer, right? Or the scooter sufferer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, somebody, somebody who's experienced suffering and evil and doesn't just ask, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? But the question is, why me? Why me, Lord? I'm sure several of you have asked that question or asking that question right now, if you're honest with yourself, if you're experiencing suffering, why me? Job asked that question. Job was very perplexed about that question. And this book is helpful for addressing not just the armchair questioner, but the wheelchair questioner. So my, my hope is that as we go through this material, it'd both be informative, it'd help you, you'd learn about the book of Job, but also would encourage your faith. It would encourage you as you seek to have faith in the midst of suffering, and it would encourage you and help you to be a friend to those who suffer. So we'll, and ultimately it would help you as it points you to the God who's sovereign over suffering and evil. So that's kind of where we're going. Okay, so Job 1, the book of Job begins with Job's prosperity. So Job 1, this is the first several verses, says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. The little phrase, the people of the East. Job uh, probably wasn't a Jew. He probably lived in the time of the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but he lived away from where they were. So he's a, what the Bible calls a God-fearer, somebody who's outside of the covenant people of God, but has a sense of who God is and is, is a fearer of God. That's scholars' best guess. We're not really sure about Job's historical placement, but that, that's what people think. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of, um, house of each one of his day, on, on his day, and they would send an invite and their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So the book of Job begins with this man Job, who's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. That's, that's a combination you don't see a lot, is it? Someone who's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. But Job just begins by showing that that is possible. H having, having wealth doesn't necessarily mean you've sold out or you're, or you're not godly or something like that. But he's happy, healthy, wealthy, and godly. But the most important description of Job comes in verse 1, that the man was blameless. 
So what does that, what does that mean? How can somebody be blameless? Well, the word blameless, it, it doesn't mean sinless. So it's not like Job never sinned during his lifetime. What the word blameless means is something like personal integrity. Like he's the same on the inside as he is on the outside. So that's why Paul in Philippians 3 can say, according to the law, I was blameless. Well, really, Paul, like you, you never sinned? You never coveted? No, it's, it's not saying that, but it's saying I am genuine. Like there's no secret sin that I'm hiding. What I am on the outside, the face I'm putting in front of others is who I truly am on the inside. And that's really important because in the story, Job's friends are going to say, well, the reason you're suffering must be because there's some secret sin that we don't know about. And Job the whole time says, no, I'm, I'm blameless. I'm not sinless, but I'm, I'm blameless of some secret sin that you think I'm, I'm hiding. That's what that means. He's He's blameless. And then, as you guys know, the story goes, Job's happy beginning turns sour really quickly, right? And, and Job won later on. His, his wealth is taken away. Uh, his, his children die. They're all in one of these parties together, having, having a festival, having a feast together. A, a wind comes, probably a tornado comes, knocks down the house. All of his children die. Like, like, can you imagine? This is, this is just happening one after the other. Chapter 2, his health is taken away, sitting in boils. I mean, just, just miserable suffering. And one has to ask, why? Why would a good man suffer so much trouble and turmoil? Why does God allow that? And as the reader of Job, we have a perspective that Job doesn't have. And so I think I, I think I have the text printed out in your outline, but if you want to turn in your own copy of the scriptures, look at Job 1, 6 through 12. What we're really going to dive in on is, yeah, God's purpose behind the suffering. And it says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God and especially in the Old Testament, usually refers to angelic beings. So you have like the cherubim, the seraphim, these, these angels that are presenting themselves before God, kind of like a, almost like a cabinet meeting. Like you have God the king, and he has his hosts before him. Scripture calls God the God of hosts. These, these angels that are around him at his table, ready to do his bidding. So one of these types of meetings is taking place, right? Where all these angels are coming before the Lord came to present, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased his land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord." 
this, this is a really strange scene. So you have this, this cabinet of God taking place where they're kind of, God is saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. Angels are going to go out and make it happen. His ministering spirits. And then Satan comes in and is among that cabinet. And some, some scholars write about that and make it seem as if Satan's kind of intruding on that meeting. But I don't think that's the best way to understand it. I think Satan, even in his opposition to God, is still, and what we'll see, is still firmly under the authority and sovereignty of God himself. So Satan, even though he wants to work evil and destroy, he's actually still, in some sense, a ministering spirit of God. Not in the sense that he's trying to do good, but that God is going to use his evil for good. So some people like to think of uh, the Bible kind of in terms of Star Wars. I don't know, is there any, are there any Star Wars fans in here? Kind of have the, you have the force and there's a good side and the bad side and they're kind of in this eternal struggle back and forth, like which one's going to win? And some people kind of impute that idea to Christianity. Like, oh, okay, well, you have God, he's good, and Satan, and he's bad, and they're kind of doing war with each other. And that is just not the picture that the Bible gives us at all. Satan, like the other angels, is firmly under the fixed authority of God. But what's going on here? So Satan says, or God actually says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered his blamelessness? Have you considered his righteousness? The word Satan literally means something like accuser, the one, the one who brings accusation. So Satan's role, what he's, going, what he's doing, going to and fro on the earth, is looking for, what seems to be, he's looking for religious hypocrisy. He's looking for, he's looking to tear down believers' faith, right? That's what Satan is about. And God's saying, have you considered Job? And then this is where the, the kind of conflict of the story picks up. Because Satan says, yeah, I've seen Job, but the only reason why Job worships you and is faithful to you is because of all the stuff he has, right? He says, Job worships God not for who he is, but for what he gives. That's the accusation. Satan says, God, if you take away Job's wealth, if you take away his health, if you take away all these things from him, he will curse you. He won't remain faithful to you. So what Satan's doing is he's, he's accusing the genuineness of Job's faith, and he's attacking the glory of God. Okay, why, why do I say that? Why is he attacking the glory of God? Well, he's saying that God is only, God's people only worship him because he gives them good things. It's not because they actually love him. It's not because they actually think he's glorious and he's righteous and he's worthy to be worshiped for who he is. Job's saying, no, 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 the most righteous man on earth, the only reason he worships you is because you provide good things for him. You see how that's, that what Satan's trying to do is diminish the glory and worth of God. So the suffering of Job, here at the beginning, really is, it's a test. And here's the test. Here's, here's the question that comes to Job and comes to each of us as well. Will Job, will we, will we worship God for who he is? or only for what he gives? Will, will we worship him for who he is, or only what he gives? Now, when things are going really well in life, that test is almost impossible to take place. How can you know, right? But when suffering comes, 
when, when disease comes, when, when perplexing circumstances come, that's when the test comes. Will you worship God even if every blessing is taken away? That's what came to Job. That's the test Job's enduring. And that's the test we'll all endure to some degree or another. Listen to how um, Eric Ortland puts it. Another one of the Ortland brothers. There's, uh, there's like so many, there's four Ortlands that write in different, different capacities, and this is one of them. Eric Ortland, he wrote a great book on Job. He says this, We are only nine verses into this long and complex book, but already we are near its heart. Do God's people love and fear him for his sake as an end in himself? Or is God used as a means to some other earthly end, such as having enjoyable lives? Will we enter into a relationship with God in which all we ultimately gain is God? The question is a very great one. For a relationship with God, for God's sake, is surely the only kind of relationship that will save us. Do God's people love and fear him for his sake as an end in himself? The reason why God is allowing this test to take place, and you, I would be surprised if none of us have that question reading it, right? I had the question as I was studying this text. It's like, is this, is this cruel? Like, why is God allowing this test? Why is he even, why is he even entertaining Satan's thoughts, right, during this conversation? And I think the only way we can understand it is if we realize that God's glory is the most important thing. God's glory is the most important thing in our lives, in the universe, in all things. If we understand that, we can understand Job and the suffering he endured, and Job and the suffering we endure. So this is um, Christopher Ash. I would really recommend Christopher Ash's commentary on Job. I think we have it in the bookstore especially if you're walking through suffering. It's just an excellent resource. He says this on why, does God, why is God allowing the test. He says, Satan, for all his malice, is doing something necessary to the glory of God. In some deep way, it's necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man, that God's worship is in no way dependent on God's gifts. So God's worship, God is great, greatly to be praised whether things are good or things are bad, whether blessings come, whether blessings are taken away, whether we're healthy or sick, right? When we worship God in the midst of all of that, what we're saying is God is greater than his gifts. And I, I will love him even if everything is taken away. And that faith, that faith brings great glory to God. So that's the purpose of Job's innocent suffering. Job, he's not suffering for the sake of his sin or discipline or anything like that. He's suffering, and his suffering is ultimately the purpose of the greater glory of God. That's another quote by Christopher Ashe. He says, The glory of God is more important than your or my or Job's comfort. In some deep way, the sufferings of Job are necessary to redound to the glory of God. Really, the, the, the worshiper who's suffering, I was thinking about this as us, we're going in to sing here in a little bit, and we're going to sing praises to God, declaring how great God is. And I was just thinking that really the worshiper who's suffering stands on holy ground. 
the worshiper who's disappointed in life circumstances, who's disillusioned by what, we, what, what you, you thought life would be like and it's not, what you thought your future would be like and it's not, but yet you stand and you worship God for who he is, that's holy ground. Because what's happening in that moment is God's glory is on display for how great he is. I, um, I have a practice I'm not like commending saying, oh, you should do this because sometimes it kind of weirds people out. But during uh, corporate worship time while we're singing, I like to look around. I like look around and look at different people. And um, yes, yeah, so some people know that you've like made eye contact with me and you're like, yeah, that's really weird. Can you stop doing that? Um, but I, I like to look around because I remember that even when my faith is weak and I see other people singing these truths, I'm reminded that it's real. And I'll never, never forget singing um, How Firm a Foundation, You Saints of the Lord. And the line goes, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. And I looked over and I, I saw the Jap family singing that, right? Like just enduring unimaginable loss. I thought, this, this is true. And I, just, and I just looked and I just, I just started weeping. I was like done for the rest of, the rest of church that day because I was just reminded of, yes, this is, this is true. This God is great and glorious. Wow, if you're suffering and you go, and not, not, with, a, not with a happy face. They weren't, it wasn't a, a glib sense of just, oh yeah, everything's great. Let's clap our hands and smile and be happy. But maybe with tears running down your face, raising your hands, praising God. I'm like, that's, that's an encouragement to my faith. That brings glory to God. And that's what Job does, right? In Job 1, 20, he says, part of his, part of his mourning, he, he shaved his, after his suffering, he shaved his head, he, he put ashes on his head, he got down on his knees, and he said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's like, wow, you can say that. That brings great glory to God. So a couple, a couple of lessons just on Job's miserable suffering, and then we have to move on to thinking about his friends and thinking about what do we say to somebody who's suffering. The first one is embrace the mystery of providence when you're suffering and evil uh, come your way. Embrace the mystery of providence. Job, the whole book, is ignorant of the, the conversation God and Satan have. Job does not know why he's suffering the whole time. And that's instructive for us because often we do not know why we're suffering. We know the big picture, that it's working for God's glory and our eternal good, but we don't know what specific purpose God has in our specific suffering. We have to learn to embrace the mystery of providence. It's a, um, a great Puritan phrase that I like called bitter providence, right? This idea that everything that comes in our lives comes from God, but that doesn't mean everything is sweet. Things can be bitter, coming, coming like, like medicine that you take, right? That's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's coming from God. I like um, Samuel Rutherford. He has an illustration about this, and he talks about how um, we're like a nail and suffering or disappointment, fill in the blank of trials of life 
are like a hammer, right? That's just hammering us down. And from the nail's perspective, this is really, this is really terrible. Like there's nothing good going on. And it says this, the hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had any feeling and intelligence, could present another side of the story. For the nail knows the hammer only as an opponent, a brutal, merciless enemy who lives to pound it into submission. That is the nail's view of the hammer, and it is accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the hammer is held by the workman, and all resentment toward it will disappear. Think about that. The hammer of suffering in the hands of the master workman. That's what's going on when we're suffering, right? It feels just like a hammer beating down on us, but there is a workman behind it. We might not know his purpose right away. We might not know his purpose till we're in glory and we, we understand what was going on, but we can know that there's a workman behind it. Uh, lesson two, the, pop, the proper response to suffering is weeping and worship. So I was thinking about this and thinking about the, um, the, the Jap family and just their, their story is that these two things aren't mutually exclusive, weeping and worship. Wor- corporate worship and singing, it, it's, not just a t- it's not just for happy people. Um, I think that's actually the best testimony there is of someone who's, uh, I read an article recently that said something like, what can, miser- what can miserable people sing at church? And I'm thankful that there's songs that we sing that talk about suffering, talk about, yeah, when circumstances are miserable, what we can sing that brings glory to God. The proper response to suffering is weeping and worship. You can do both of those things together. Okay, let's jump ahead to Job's misguided counselors. So this is the bulk of the book is this dialogue between Job and his friends, Job 4 through 37. And I just want to be asking a question. Like, if you th- think about this, and maybe, you can maybe even write it down if, you, if you're taking notes. If you were Job's friend, what would you say to him? What, what would you say that you think would bring him comfort, encouragement? And think, of, think about his circumstances, Right? Just lost all of his children, his health. I mean, it's really outside of the suffering of Christ, probably the most severe, um, innocent suffering that's ever occurred. If you were his friend, what would you say? That would encourage him. Think about that for a second. Job's friends begin by sitting with him in silence for seven days. And we'll see that that's actually the best thing that they did. After they, after they got out of silence, things went downhill pretty quickly. <laughs> so you, some of you guys who, you know, who do suffer or have suffered recently may attest to this, that sometimes the best thing somebody can do is just be quiet and, and, and be there, right, and pray. But... I'm not good at that. I'm a, I'm a talker, right? I like, to, I like to talk. I like to engage. I like to well, have you, have you read Romans 8.28? Yes, I've read Romans 8.28. I know Romans 8.28. Oh, have you read this? Have you done this? And it's like, yes, I've done all that. And, and it's, it's unhelpful, right? Sometimes the best thing is to slow, slow down. Um, so Job's friends, they sit with him in silence uh, for, in the ground for seven days. But then they began to speak. And um, their, their counsel is very unhelpful. 
because it has an imbalanced theology and, and an inappropriate tone. Their, their, their counsel is based off of a faulty understanding of suffering, of God's purpose in suffering. And it's really summarized well uh, in Job 8. So I have this text printed out by a guy named Bildad. Bildad is one of his friends. If you're thinking about names for, for sons, you know, throw, throw Bildad in there. Just a great name. No, I'm just kidding. So Bildad, uh, this is Job 8, 1 through 7, and then 20 through 22. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Job, at this point, has expressed some of his questions, right? Like, why is God doing this to me? Uh, he's, he's expressed his mourning, his weeping, his loss. Now his friend's saying, why are you saying this? This is a great wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, you are pure and upright. Surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And although your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Behold, God will not reject the blameless man. Remember that word blameless, right? Job is blameless. His friend saying God will not reject the blameless man. God will not bring suffering to someone who's blameless. That's the theology of Bildad. That's crippling. Oh my, that is, that is devastating for Job. Because then what's Job going to think about God? Job knows his own heart that he's blameless. So if he says that God will not pervert justice to a blameless man, Job must think that God perverts justice. Because he knows he's blameless, right? Do you see how unhelpful that theology is? Behold, God will not reject a blameless man or take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. The theology of Job's friends, in a nutshell, it goes something like this. God is just, and therefore in this life, the righteous will prosper, and the wicked will perish. That's, that's, that's his theology, right? And if you know your Bible well, you know that that is partially true. I want to be careful, but if you read the book of Proverbs, right, there's a lot of wisdom in Proverbs that says, okay, if you, if you work hard, right, the lazy man ends up hungry, and the man who works hard ends up well-fed and wealthy. The book, of, the book of Proverbs says this is true to an extent. You, do, you reap what you sow in this life to some degree, but the problem is when you take that and assume that's always the case. So then you see someone suffering and you assume they must have done something wrong. Or you're suffering and you assume you must have done something wrong. The book of Job corrects that and says, no, 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 that's not true. This is a general principle that's not always the case. D.A. Carson says that Job's friends have a tight theology with no loose ends. I love that phrase. It's a tight theology. They have a system worked out, right? Where, okay, it makes sense. You're good, God gives you good. You're bad, God gives you bad. That's very logical, right? And that kind of makes sense of, you know, when, when we're in school, we do good. We get rewarded by the teacher. When we're bad, we're disciplined with our, with our parents. That's just how life works. But the book of Job tells us that God does not always work that way. Job actually has the same theology and the same questions, 
because he thinks, well, God must be doing something unjust. I'm confused. Why, why is God causing me to suffer? And so this section of dialogue and kind of this idea of theology, it teaches us a lot. So the, the first lesson in this section is, and if you really take anything away, especially if you're suffering, I would just want you to take this away, that suffering is not always connected with personal sin. Suffering is not always connected with personal sin. If circumstances in your life are hard and bad, it is not necessarily connected with the fact that you've done something wrong to deserve that, to earn that. Job Job was not being punished. Job wasn't even being disciplined, right? Job was blameless and still experiencing suffering. So I I, I don't know if you're you're like me, um, but resist the urge to look backward at your life, like playing your life and rewind. I don't know if you guys ever done that before. Like you kind of rewind in your mind choices that you've made and wonder if maybe God is giving me hard things now because of how I sinned back then. Or maybe it's maybe my spiritual state right now isn't what God wants it to be, and that's why things are hard or this is hard. Be careful. That's not, that's not what God does. That's not how he acts. Don't, suffering isn't a puzzle. Your personal suffering isn't a puzzle to be solved, right? It's, it's a mystery, and it's supposed to lead us to humble trust in God. Don't try to solve the puzzle of your suffering. Oh, if I just get these pieces together right, then God will bless me. It'll drive you, drive you insane. There's a lesson two. Be, be a humble and prayerful counselor. Um, I, I recently read a book called, um, I think it's called Sinners, Sufferers, and Saints. It's on like biblical counseling. And it was so helpful. It was just talking about the, the need to counsel humbly. And uh, he gives several steps. Like, so this is, what would you say if you're Job's friend? You know, how, how to help someone who's suffering. I think one would be, listen with patience. So a quote from that book. We are often less patient with a sufferer's process of confusion and lament than God is. We're often less patient with somebody's struggle than God is. If you read the Psalms, read Psalm 88. Psalm 88, it begins dark, it's dark in the middle, and it ends dark. Which is strange, right? You're used to, okay, you're reading the psalm and you're thinking, okay, it starts really hard, but then in the end, surely there's going to be a, a resolution and God is my strength and my shield. And I love those psalms, actually. I, I have trouble with Psalm 88 because it ends, it doesn't end that way. It ends in, in with being, with struggling, right? I think you have to be a friend that's okay with your friend not getting to some level of emotional happiness uh, in the moment while counseling. Don't assume to have the answer. Don't, um, don't compare suffering. So I, this, you know, I don't want to use personal examples. I don't think I'm suffering uh, tremendously, but th- this happened twice on the day that I broke my ankle. It was, it was so funny. I was like sitting there. I just broke my ankle and I was sitting in a chair really thinking I was about to pass out. I was just in so much pain. And then one of my colleagues came up and talked about how he tore his Achilles playing basketball, and I should be really thankful that I didn't tear my Achilles. And I was just like, okay, thanks, yeah, that's, 
That's true, I guess. I'm thankful I just broke my ankle and didn't tear my Achilles, but that doesn't really help me right now in this moment, right, that you suffered more than I did. And then I got to the, the orthopedic clinic, and I thought, surely, these, you know, these folks are they're trained, and they were. They, they, they were excellent. I was in and out, and so I'm not at all complaining about that experience. But the, one of the nurses started talking about how her son was in a coma growing up and how I should be like thankful that at least it's just my foot. And, and you know, I'm, just, I'm just thinking like, I, yes, that's true, but unhelpful. So as you're counseling people, just think not everything that's true is helpful in the moment, right? There are, there's true theology, misapplied is, un, is unhelpful, okay? And I think the big thing is to just the best you can, remind your friends of God's presence and activity. God is there. He has a plan. Suffering isn't random. The last thing I want to talk about in Job is the last section, Job's majestic God. This is Job 38 through 42. This is how the book ends. So for, for all of these chapters, Job is perplexed, confused about what's going on. His friends are talking back and forth. Why, am I su- why are you suffering? You must have sinned. No, I haven't sinned. Oh, you must have sinned. No, I haven't sinned. I don't know why I'm suffering. And finally, in Job 38, God speaks. And we can all take a breath like, yes, God is going to speak. But his speeches aren't exactly what we expect. We expect God to tell Job why he's suffering. We expect him to maybe fill him in on the conversation between him and Satan and fill him in on why he's enduring what he's enduring. That would make sense, right? God doesn't tell him. He still, God still never tells him why he's suffering. But instead, he reveals who he is. God gives Job a greater vision of himself. He gives two speeches. The first speech, he talks about his wisdom and creation. So this is Job 38, 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements? Um, 39.26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings to the south? It's almost like he takes Job on a tour of the zoo and says, have you created all of these animals? Do you understand how they work? Did you set how deep the ocean is? Do you know? Do, do you know? There's one verse says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Have you considered that? I was like, no, actually, I haven't considered the mountain goats. I'm dealing with a lot of suffering. But he's saying, Job, I know in the most remote part of the world when the mountain goats give birth. Do you not think I know about your suffering? Do you not think I've planned this? Do you not think that I know what you're feeling? God alone is the majestic creator. And the final speech, the final way God answers this problem is in Job 41, where he talks about the strange creature, Leviathan. And scholars debate on what exactly Leviathan is. What's clear from the text is that it's a fire-breathing sea dragon, which is crazy, right? And the book of Job is very, it's very strange in that regard. But what, what this is dealing with, Leviathan is probably... It's probably a picture, an image of chaos, evil, and Satan himself. And God's speech, what he says is that the Leviathan is real. Though Leviathan 
harms you, causes suffering. He's a terrifying beast. He's under my control. Can you draw, this is Job 40. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The book of Job ends with God coming and destroying Leviathan, promising to come and destroy Leviathan. So it really ends with this picture of Job doesn't know why he's suffering, but he knows that God is sovereign over suffering, and he knows that God will come and end suffering one day. And it ends us with wanting more, which is exactly what we get when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and pierces Leviathan. That's the final lesson, is that Jesus is the greater Job. Jesus is the one who has come and pierced Leviathan. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christ's redemptive work crushes the serpent's head, and he will one day return to complete his work. So as we, as we suffer and as we wait, like Job, let, let's commit to praising God for who he is, not just what he gives. And I want to end with Job 1.21, where we began. It said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for these these folks here, thank you, Lord, that they came early and wanted to hear a teaching from your word. We thank you for the book of Job and what it, what it teaches us about you. Lord, I pray especially for those in this room who are suffering, uh, for those who are, have suffering that's come on recently, or those who are suffering just prolonged um, illness, struggle, disappointment, confusion, Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would use the book of Job to build up their faith. And I pray you would, right now, even by your spirit, use something, something from your word or from this talk to build them up and lift their eyes so that they can worship you, the majestic God who's sovereign over all. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for, for coming and let's enjoy some donuts and... Go in and sing to the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.